listeners, and welcome to Chatty AF, the anime feminist podcast. My name is Vry. I'm an editor and contributor at Anime Feminist. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at WriterVry, and if you check my pinned thread, it has all the nifty places I've freelanced. Or you can hear my other podcast uh, that I co-host on, at TrashPod. And I have Caitlin and Dee with me today. Hi, I'm Caitlin. I am a writer and editor for Anime Feminist, and I do various other stuff on the internet that for some reason I just don't feel like listing today. <laughs> Short and like simple. That. And I'm Dee, the managing editor at Anifem. I also run the anime blog, The Jose Next Door, and you can find me on Twitter at Jose Next Door. And we are beginning a new watch along for uh, the 1996 series, The Vision of Escaflone. This is a little bit different from our usual watch along in that while normally we try to have two people who aren't familiar with the show at all, all three of us have seen this series before. These will still be spoiler free. Um, These will still be a a spoiler free discussion. So we're only going to talk about what we've seen up to. But we're kind of, so we're kind of tentatively talking about them as kind of a newbie guide. We know it, but we want to experience it with you, the listeners, who might be getting into it for the first time. Does that sound right to you guys? Yeah, yeah. We're sort of, um, you know, helping folks kind of ease into it and discuss it with, you know, using the extra knowledge we have, but without necessarily spoiling anything. So we might be able to, like, point out things that you wouldn't necessarily notice your first time through kind of stuff. Um, we technically did this with Fushigi Yugi, but we didn't really have a set format for watch-alongs back then, so we just called it a watch-along, but now we're, we're sort of thinking of these as newbie guides. Mostly we, the three of us just want to get together and talk about a series that we really love. We, we had a lot of fun doing Fushigi Yugi, and we missed it, and we wanted to do it again with another 90s uh, isekai. So here we are. Um, so before we get a little bit into our backgrounds with the show. Uh, let's do some production background. Um, as I said, Escaflone ran for 26 episodes in 1996. It was originally based on a concept drawn up by Shoji Kawamori, who was the creator of Macross, uh, with Yasuhiro Imagawa uh, slated to be the director. He was the head writer for the 90s Berserk, Berserk series. Um, and it was originally supposed to be a very shonen leaning series and they batted around the concept for a lot a long time but eventually the series was shelved for now just to give a hint of what it was going to be like imagawa left to g gundam which is way more along the lines of what they were thinking and then so eventually it was shelved and there's a little bit of they said they said with this uh the wikipedia credits an article from um and America from 2000 that unfortunately was never digitized that is definitely right on some details but also states that it was originally planned as a 39 episode series and got knocked down to 26 but when they did the Escaflone redub they had a Q&A on the Kickstarter that was like no no it was always planned to be 26 so I'm not entirely sure what's going on there but facts we do know is that eventually uh, Kazuke Akane was brought in to be the new director, and uh, he was responsible for adding in a lot of the shoujo elements of the series. Van and Alan were retooled to have kind of a more of a shonen look, and it had uh, the tarot cards and divining elements were really beefed up. And so that's kind of how we got to the series that we have now, which is 
a little bit of a hybrid between shonen and shoujo aesthetics, which we're definitely going to talk about today. There was also, uh, it was the premiere, well, not the very first, but the breakout role for Maya Sakamoto, a really huge voice actor who recently you might remember from the watch long of Oran High School Host Club because she played Haruhi. She's great. She's, She's awesome. Pretty great. She's one, I one love of my her. Favorites. Yeah, you, same here. You might also know her as uh, Mari in the Rebuild of Evangelion films, or Aerith in um, Final Fantasy Advent Children, and just a bunch of other. Crona uh, and Soul Eater. She has done so much stuff. She's one of my favorites. A lot of my a lot of my favorites are in this. This one has an all star Japanese cast. It really does. It it really the cast is just absolutely amazing. Yeah, production side too. Uh, the the mechs for this were designed by Mahiro Maeda who also did some of the angel designs for Evangelion and went on to be the series director of Gankutsuo, which is one of my favorite anime of all time. Wow. Yeah. Which is, uh, very cool. And it, uh, it also had a fairly notable soundtrack, which, uh, by Yoko Kano, who had, uh, before this, just done Please Save My Earth. Yeah, and this was a relatively early one in her career, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, she, back when she was still working with her then husband. Mostly, uh, you'll probably know her name from Watanabe series, like Cowboy Bebop, or from Wolf's Rain, which also has a really stellar soundtrack, um, and Kids on the Slope, all that stuff. Yeah. She's very good. She's very good, is what I'm saying. Uh, so, yeah, this, despite being a kind of rocky, unusual production, it ended up with some really talented people behind it. Do we want to talk about the manga now or later? I mean, give folks a, uh, you don't, you don't have to go into the details, just, just kind of, just kind of address the fact that they exist. Are, there's more than one, right? Yeah, yes. so there's two, there's two manga, uh, one is a shonen that was sort of made out of the production. When they thought that the series was not going to get made, they basically handed off the production notes to, uh, the mangaka, Oh Great, who made a shonen manga out of it, and that's sort of a very interesting glimpse into what Escaflone was supposed to be originally um and then i believe after the anime was made they made a shoujo manga version of it which um i have not read but i've read the shonen one it blows um yeah the, <laughs> the the shonen manga is the one that got um brought over by tokyo pop hello again tokyo pop and actually it started um it's interesting because it started running six months before the anime did there's kind of an there's a real short little interview in the back of the last volume with Katsuaki, who is the uh, who is the credited mangaka. Um, oh, it was Katsuaki, not oh great, never mind. Oh good, I was wrong. Um, yeah, and you can see kind of some of the original concepts, like uh, Hitomi is originally kind of a a ditz, and but then it and they talk a little bit about deliberately differentiating themselves from the anime once they started once the anime did start running. But at the same time, they also seemed a little bit beholden to the anime because um, in- There were the a couple days, of things in the later manga that really were like, really? Yeah. Well, and like Aki talks about Hitomi's glass. Hitomi started out with glasses because that was her original design. And then they just kind of vanish halfway through the manga, which was apparently because Hitomi's, uh, Hitomi's anime design got rid of them. And it's very baffling. Yeah, and it's not a good manga. <laughs> it oh. was. It was also written by um, my friend and uh, 
once guest, uh, special guest, Leanne Centaur. Did I say written or translated? You said written. You translated, translated. Yes. I was, the, okay. The translation was written by, um, it was, and when I was like, yeah, you gave Vaughn a really filthy mouth when I was talking to her about it. She's like, well, have you ever talked to me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was wondering about that because we talked on our manga roundup podcast about how Tokyo Pop had mm, a loose at a, uh, approach to, to translation scripts, shall we say. So I wondered how much of him being just a rude asshole was a different take from the mo- uh, in the manga characterization and how much was Tokyo Pop being Tokyo Pop? No, I mean, I think the rudeness was him, but you know how, like, being rude in Japanese and being rude in English, like, swearing in Japanese and swearing in English, they don't really, like, they don't really work the same way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, they don't. So her choice as a young newbie translator was to just make him swear and swear and swear and swear constantly it, it does leave an impression for sure potty mouth Vaughn I'm trying to imagine it's it's not he's just he's just horrible he's, to Hitomi he's is, awful is Manga Vaughn is awful you see well and I think you see a glimpse of that in the very very first episode of the and in like the first couple episodes of the anime he's a little bit of an ass mm-hmm. and he told me like yells at him and then he pretty much immediately stops which is which is nice right, right. well um I mean, and in his is, defense he is under a lot of stress yeah he, he is does it being like, attacked by a dragon and his kingdom gets destroyed it's so, like an angsty oh. teenager sort of way yeah well he has like a line in the first episode where he's like i didn't need to be saved by some girl or something like that and he told me he's like Yo, dog, fuck off. Um, <laughs> Isn't that what she and then slaps get... him? Yeah, she yeah. slaps him. <laughs> good. It, it's, it's it's very good. Very good. Yeah, and also, he t- Manga Hitomi is naked a lot. Naked a lot with yes. bathing and peeping scenes. Oh, yes. Somehow unsurprised, that does not sound good yeah. at all. I mean, listen, yeah. uh, I can get into the manga a little bit later. I do want to note, though, that one thing that jumped out at me in the manga was like this is not a spoiler for the anime like because you see it very early the escaflone in the anime transforms into a dragon mm-hmm. and in the last volume of the manga with absolutely no foreshadowing completely out of nowhere the escaflone transforms into a dragon they talk a little bit here and there about like you know escaflone's true form and whatnot but it was it, it's very poorly used as a through line because it gets it, it gets mentioned early on and then dropped for a long time. I feel like they saw it saw it like saw it happen in the anime and they were like, that looks cool. Yep. Let's do that. Well the fact that they just decided he told me magically didn't need glasses anymore a few volumes in suggests that there was maybe not a lot of focus on consistency of story and character in the manga. No. But we can kind of talk about the comparisons as we go if you guys because I've not I've not read it. I don't know anything about it. So yeah, I am absolutely. interested to hear like how it compares as we move through the series for sure. <laughs> cool. Well uh, since we've all seen this before I guess it might not be a bad idea to touch briefly on our histories with the series. You guys want to go first? I, I don't really have much of a series, a history with this series, honestly. Like, there's nothing really remarkable or notable about what made me decide to watch it or, like, who watched it. It just had positive word of mouth, and eventually uh, I bought the DVDs when they were on sale and watched it, and it was good. <laughs> were, were you a teenager or a grown-ass adult when you did this? College or something. 
Okay, so grown-ish ass adult. Because <laughs> college. A half-ass uh, adult, if you will. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> um, I was, um, I was, I was a teenager. I was 14, 15. This was during the two-year period after I discovered anime, and I had access to a lot of it, and a best friend who was also very into it, and pretty much every Friday night we'd get together, we'd rent an entire series, and we'd binge it in 24 hours. Um, that was me in middle school. I was wild and crazy. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Escaflone was one of those when we started, you know, looking for shows, it got mentioned a lot. So it was, I don't know exactly when I watched it in relation to, like, Slayers and Utena and, um, and Evangelion and Bebop and like those those big name shows, but it was definitely in there. Um, I really liked it, and it ended up being a show that I would use as kind of a gateway anime for my girlfriends in uh, high school um, because I just it's it's action focused, but it's also got you know some some really good like character um, interactions and development and stuff like that. And so a lot of the time I'd be like, it's very anime. So if you like this, you're going to like anime. Um, and so I used it as a, as a gateway for a few friends, and it worked. They're still they're anime fr- fans to this day, yeah. so I did something right. It really does um, have, like, all of, all of the 90s anime tropes. And, and very little of the 90s anime bullshit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, which it's I think got, also made it, like, a nice, a nice starter show. It's got giant robots. It's got cat girls. It's got... Pretty boys with wings. It's got all those. It's knights errant, and yeah, it's it's all of it's all of the above. Um, mm-hmm. And and the and the sympathetic antagonists and the yeah no it's 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 quintessential. It to me also it kind of feels like um, if a '90s JRPG got turned into an anime, I think it would just be. I think Escaflone is that. Um, I think it yeah. fits that that pattern of storytelling um, very strongly, especially in the sense of like the plot doesn't really make sense, but you can roll with it because you like you're so invested in the character stories. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of part of my weird history with it is I have so I watched it in um, middle school and then I watched it part of it a couple of times in high school and then my friends who I got who I would get into it would get so sucked in that they'd watch the rest without me. They're like, couldn't wait, sorry. Um, and then I rewatched it like two or three years ago with a couple of friends who had never seen it. And I was like, I've been meaning to rewatch it. Let's do it. But I genuinely couldn't tell you what the plot of Escaflone is, even after having just rewatched it a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, there is some hole in my brain where the plot of Escaflone should stay, like memory wise, and it just falls. It just drops through that pit and disappears as soon as I watch the show. Same. Um, but here. I can tell you all about the characters and how great they are, because they're all very great and very memorable. Even the shitty ones are great and memorable. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah. I, so yeah, I'm I'm fond of it. It's not a show that I've ever. It's one of those where when I'm making like top twenty lists, it's always like right there on the edge, and I can never decide if it's quite there or not. I really like it, but I don't know if I love it. Um, but I'm excited to be watching it again for sure. So what uh, my understanding is that it was not a huge hit in Japan. It's one of those series that's considered more quintessential uh, in Western fandom rather than in Japanese fandom. I know it was huge, huge, huge in the fan sub days. Um, when I was getting the Viz catalogs, they had like the fancy clamshell cases and with the like very like soft art rather than like the clearly like anime cell sort of style video cases. Cause this was VHS 
mm-hmm. in a mail order catalog way back in the day. Um, and I didn't think it, I didn't like the look of the art sta- style on those cases. Um, but so, but it was definitely treated like something that was like very special um, in the catalog and by the licensors. And so I don't, but I don't think it's really popular in Japan. If you go to like even sort of nostalgia based uh, anime stores, you're not going to see a lot of Escaflone manga or uh, Escaflone merchandise rather. Yeah, allegedly it was specifically the uh, adoration for it in Western fandom that got the movie made and it just wasn't a big deal in Japan at all. I think similar to uh, Trigun, the mm-hmm. same kind of dynamic. Just not that big a deal in in Japanese fandom at all, despite being like the cornerstone of 90s anime in the US. Um, but I, I mentioned on the Fushigi Yugi podcast that this is kind of my 90s isekai problematic fave but uh-huh. my experience with it is not quite the same as your guys with that show because i didn't see it until i was right out of college uh and like most bad decisions in life i made it because i was in love with a straight girl so um those I- straight girls will get you <laughs> i should straight I-, I should say straight people in general are mm, uh, yeah but but in this case <laughs> Um, so yeah, it was, I, I had gone to her house like three hours away and this was near, you know, the, the this was the first person I, I had, um, uh, I had started going by Vry not too long before, um, and this was sort of a transitional relationship that I had in that time, friendship-like, and I was very depressed and she had work that weekend even though I was there and so I watched the entirety of Escaflone in 24 hours at her apartment by myself um and that relationship fell apart not too long after but the show always really stuck with me uh particularly because of a few things we aren't going to be able to talk about until the end of this watch along but it was I like to call it the Les Miserables of anime, because, like you said, D, the plot makes no damn sense, but it is so emotionally earnest. Um, I, I the, the, It believes so strongly in its characters, it has minimal bullshit, and it just feels really passionately ab- about all of these emotions of love and truth and understanding, and I don't, I don't know, it just always really stuck with me. Um, e- even though I've only watched it through the once, like it, it left a oh, very okay. powerful effect on me. Well, that's fun. So this will be your this will be your first proper rewatch of it. Now that you kind of know, yep. it's a it's a show that I think I think rewards a rewatch because there are and again we're going to be real careful not to spoil anything for folks, but it is a show that reveals things later on that you know retroactively like kind of affect how you see some of the characters and, and some of the activities early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's- it's been almost it's been almost nine or ten years, so we'll see how much I remember. Because like you, I remember almost nothing about the actual plot details of Escaflone. I forgot Merle really was matter. a character. Aw, poor Merle. It's okay. Everything's made up, and the plot points don't matter. Mm-hmm. Um. Extremely. Which I guess is 
I think we're going to have an issue with this early, with, with people who are coming, you know, in unawares and just saying, well, I guess I'll watch this and hear what they have to say about it, maybe hitting that moment of, why the hell are they talking about this? Because the <laughs> first six episodes do have hints of what's going to come later that's interesting, but it's also, it looks very standard fantasy on the surface. Uh, I would agree with that. I think there are, I think there are still hints in these early episodes that, um, Again, it's refreshingly free of a lot of the bullshit that comes with those fantasy tropes. Like, I think one of the best examples is Hitomi is just like right off the bat, really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Hitomi which, is so great. Which, and she, I think, like you can feel through her, especially that the series is interested in kind of exploring and even challenging some of those sort of fantasy archetypes, mm-hmm. um, like the whole concept of like chivalry and like oh. and. Um, and, and the perfect knight and the perfect soldier. And we'll get into that more with um, Vaughn and Alan definitely as we go. Um, but he told me being there, like, you know, there are there are moments, especially early on, where both Vaughn and Alan kind of have these moments with her, like, no, go sit in the corner while the menfolk fight each other. And she's like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think just her very presence right off the bat shows you that the series is is interested in playing with that with those kind yeah. of tropes. So even though it's falling into some of those patterns, it's still very it's still fun to watch early on. Even though there's that you know there's sometimes that sense of like, oh, are you guys gonna do the thing? There's you you don't ever necessarily feel like it's locked into those roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will say that I basically sped through the manga uh, for this first watch along. I'd never read it before, but it was. Because I've always liked Hitomi, but I definitely gained a new and deeper respect for her character and characterization uh, while watching, uh, while rewatching these and then reading the manga alongside it. Because she's not a combatant character; like she never fights, Mm-mm. but no, no, but she's active. Yeah, she she is always doing something, and she is, cr- like throughout these first six episodes, she is basically always the one saving Vaughn. She saves Vaughn's ass a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Um, when Alan comes along and he's basically like, like there's one point where she's like upset about something and like, he just like, like strokes her hair. He's like, it's okay. Don't worry about it. And I just wanted to jump through the screen and yeah. punch him in the face because what the fuck? Like, Oh, Alan is a Alan is a condescending shit to Hitomi, especially in the early episodes where he, because I mean he shows up and there's that there's that moment where there's that brief scene where she's sort of afraid that she's being assaulted and she's not. Um, it's Hans Molman is what I call him. Um, is like trying to steal from her and um, Alan stops him and Hitomi like immediately passes out and that's sort of their first interaction is this very kind of traditional damsel in distress rescued by the knight except that again she wasn't really being rescued because the mole man ends up being like totally benign and so but i think that i think that kind of i think that immediately like slots them it's like the i don't know it's like the the world of guy is trying to slot them into those roles and so alan kind of plays into that by being a condescending shit mm-hmm. and he told me he's having none of it and it's great yeah uh the part where she like he just leaves her behind and she's just like no fuck this uh i'm going to jump and i love it because like hitomi is athletic yeah she's mm-hmm. a track athlete like, and a good one too she's uh like she she's not a fighter but like she has the you know she is physically fit and physically capable of doing shit like jumping 6 meters mm-hmm. um when the Alan tries to leave her behind, you know, she is, 
totally capable and never like like you said never a damsel in distress never like sitting around waiting to be rescued like she needs to be like she gets rescued a couple of times but she also does the rescuing um Mm -hmm. her there's a good balance yeah her tarot abilities are absolutely in this instrumental to uh the plot so far yeah, and I do love that she ru- that that she loves running because like it it's not too uncommon for the you know a heroine to have one hobby that then turns out to be really crucial to the plot so it's basically a plot point and but but she has like things that she likes uh, and and she's really passionate about about running and it helps round out her character some. I will say that this show isn't as talented as Fushigi Yugi at connecting her back to to Earth. Like, like it really tries hard to, to convince us that she cares a lot about her friend and her crush, but it's like, g- girl, literally everything about this new place is better and more interesting. Yeah, well, she finds a CD and she listens, like, coincidentally, and then she listens to a Japanese Carol King song and she thinks about her friends. So, of course, she loves her friends. Yep. It's also the song is sung by her voice actor. Is that <laughs> it's Maya Sakamoto? Is that Maya Sakamoto? Yeah, it's... Maya Sakamoto sings most of the insert songs. They're yeah. all lovely. Um, but yeah, I mean that, that is her. Like, she was still in just high school the melody when she did is this role. very. The melody is Damn. very Carol King. Now this contrasts with. Should we talk about how manga Hitomi is different? Yeah, yeah, I th- um, yeah. So manga Hitomi is a literal object. Yep. Oh boy, she sure is. She is the. Uh, What's the name of the thing that powers the She She's the she's an energist, so she's, she's the battery the, that powers oh, Escaplane. No. She is the energist, and when she is being the energist, um, instead of, well, you know, having glasses, her um, her boobs get bigger, uh, her hair turns blonde, mm-hmm. and she uh, makes O-faces a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this sounds terrible. So bad. And again, a lot of purifying, like, ritual baths with sexy bathing where she has to, like, connect to the energist that powers Escaflone. And coincidentally, a lot of people see her naked or she gets turned to crystal, which rips off all of her clothes because, of course, it does. Mm-hmm. And just prominently drawn areolas. Ugh. Yep. And yeah, at one point she gets literally turned into a big old crystal and captured. So she's she's a literal object. <laughs> Like that—that's her only contribution to the plot. She does because she doesn't have the intelligence to do anything else. Mm-hmm. Like Manga Hitomi is an idiot. Um, it, and yeah, it, it is kind of interesting because, like, technically, Hito- Manga Hitomi is more is a more active combatant because she gets them out of trouble now and then by communicating with the robot, but. It's so based around her being a prized object that everybody is constantly trying to steal or her passively feeling emotions that then other people do something about instead of, you know, her having those visions and trying to warn people like in the anime that it, despite it being, despite her being in a combat role, it feels a lot less, she feels a lot less capable with less agency than anime Hitomi. Yeah, no, it's... It's bad. It's real bad. <laughs> it's really bad. It's always interesting to me when you see these kind of manga anime like 
projects happening simultaneously and how different they can end up, even though they technically came from, like, the same baseline. Um, and this one sounds dramatic. Uh-huh. I also suspect it that the, um, the manga was, like, I think there are comparison points between Escaflonia and Fushigi Yugi, even though they're, they're different shows. They're, they're the two biggest isekai with female leads series but um the manga feels like it ripped off the end of fushigi yugi part one really hard um the the bad guy literally wants to go to earth and take it over because he doesn't like his planet anymore sure no that that tracks yeah i honestly don't remember the plot of the escaflonu manga very much just that it was bad and that the characters were bad and van kirsten hitomi was an object I love that we can't remember the plot of any of the Escaflone adaptations. See, this will be fun. We'll also be discovering what's going on with the uh, with right. the with the newcomers, and then as soon as I watch it, I will immediately forget it again yep. because that's how the show goes. I am way too busy um, being into the cast to care about whatever's going on with the international conflict right so I-, I will say i groaned a little bit when i remembered merle existed but even by the end of this six episodes she's kind of worked her way around to endearing which is much faster than this type of character usually does oh, yeah i like merle yeah i like merle too i think um first of all i think she's a pretty good example of a cat girl who is a cat um in that you know she shows up and she's got this one person she's very attached to and everybody else is weird and she has to be suspicious of them for a while but then once she like Again, within these first six episodes, she and Hitomi are basically friends. Like, they kind of um, snap at each other a little bit, but it's sort of good-natured, I think. I think by episode six, they're kind of giving each other crap, like, back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she's a good example, again, of some of those, you know, we were talking about some of the sort of standard tropes that the series plays with in the sense of, like, oh, man, look at these women be competing. It's, like, pretty quickly you're like, oh, no, I think they're actually getting along and they like each other. So, just kidding? Thank God. Yeah. Should we talk about Delando now? Should I mean, we talk about Delando now? I like... I think there's some fun stuff happening in these early episodes with um, ideas about, like, these kind of traditional, like, masculine-coded, like, warrior ideals. Um, especially with... And I think you see that with uh, Vaughn, especially, and then also uh, Falcon and Delando in, like, their own ways. Um so yeah, we can definitely, I, I don't see why we can't talk about Delandau a little bit. Delandau in these first six episodes is great because basically every scene in Zybok is somebody going, hey, Delandau going, I'm going to do the thing. And somebody else going, you shouldn't do the thing. And then Delandau going, no, I'm going to do the thing. You're not my dad. And <laughs> then he does the thing. <laughs> and he ruins everything. And Vulcan is just in the corner like, God damn it. Every single episode. It's like, why did you put this child? Like, clearly, I think he's like 15. Why did you put a 15-year-old in charge of your military? How has he not been, like, locked up for insubordination? How? Oh, my God. It's just... Delandau's great. And, like, special shout-out... I love Delandau. Like I said, I love even the, even the like, bad characters, quote-unquote bad, are very good in this show. He He's my son, and he's objectively terrible, and I adore him. He's fun to watch every second. <laughs> His uh, his army of uh, young, young pretty boys, uh, driving uh, whose ships basically when they fly just are giant penises. They're just uh, dicks. They're just giant dicks. Um, no, the phallic the phallic symbols are strong with the Zybok military, um, which I think again is something that the show is maybe playing with a little bit 
just under the surface. Um, because I also think you see that with Vaughn a lot in these early episodes where he's got these very, like, he's not really a warrior. He doesn't really want to be one, but he's kind of been forced into this role and is very determined to play the part. Um, so, you know, you end up with a lot of sparring scenes where people are like, you're not, you know, you're not coming at me seriously. Like, you're not acting like you actually want to hurt me. And that's going to make, make you be dead when you are in up and up against a fight with somebody who actually does want to hurt you. Hmm. Um, then on the other hand, he's also got these like really rigid ideas about like a true warrior, you know, never runs away. They always stay to fight. And he tries, he basically tries to kill himself like four times within this first six episode stretch out of this kind of misguided idea about, um, you know, what it, what it means to have courage. And I like that the series bats him down, I think in some ways gently, um, but firmly, um, do you think he... pretty much every time that happens, like his, his teacher yells at him about it when, um, when Finelli is being attacked. And then, um, Alan, I think gives him, gives him some good advice actually when they're, um, when he's kind of acting as a mentor figure for a few episodes there. And it's like, listen, your job is to, you know, provide people with hope and live to fight. Like if you die here, your kingdom's screwed. So you've got to be thinking, you know, past these kind of rigid sort of selfish ideas almost. Um, and I like the way the series plays with that. And I think Hitomi's there to yell at him sometimes, too, which is good. Do you think Vaughn has an actual uh, death wish? I definitely think he has some survivor's guilt, at the very least. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I think he has this idea, and I think it's kind of baked into his community. And I think this is part of what's sort of interesting about the conflict with Falcon and the fact that he ends up sort of turning against his nation. Um, is, like, to become the king, you have to murder a dragon and take its heart. Um, and so I think that there's kind of baked into their world is this idea of like this warrior code and how you find your value through like violence. Um, even if you die, you must die nobly kind mm-hmm. of thing. Right. And Falcon is disgraced because he ran away and preserved his life rather than dying in battle. And, and Falcon's response is to go, fuck this. I'm going to fuck this shit up. Yeah. And so then Vaughn, but then because of that, Vaughn is kind of forced to step into this role as, you know, the next king because he wasn't supposed to be. And now he suddenly is. And the, you know, it, there's, it, it certainly seems in these early episodes, again, things happen very quickly in the show, mm-hmm. but I think there's a decent amount of subtext about like how the world works that gives you some like meat to chew on. Um, you know, there's very much this sense in the early episodes that like every scene in Finelia basically with Vaughn is something to do with like, fighting or killing and so you get the sense that you know being a warrior and being the king are very closely tied together um and so i think von being kind of forced to step into that role that he really wasn't prepared for and wasn't suited for i think that influences his care but but you know wants to do that for his country because he does you know care about finelia um I think that's kind of where a lot of his his sort of central conflict comes right. from. Because then you get scenes where like Hitomi and Merle are sick, and Vaughn's like doing a really good job of looking after them, and like comes up with the medicine they need and everything. And you're like, oh, you this is this is what you should be doing, huh, honey? Yeah, mm-hmm. he's, I like Vaughn. and he he cares about his people. Like Finelia is shown as like one of those small kingdoms where like everyone sort of knows the king. Um, like the king is out in the world and the kingdom among his people. Um, and everyone knows him and everyone adores him and he wants to do right by his kingdom. Um, so he's a very, uh, empathetically driven character, but the demands of towards him are for him to be, uh, for him to be violent, to be a king and to be a man. And I think those ideals are what led him to be like, oh, I don't want to be saved by a woman because that's not what's manly. 
um, it would have been better for him to have died at that point for in his view. Um, and like I said, maybe he a little bit wanted to die. Maybe he like, it's like, I'm going, had already been thinking like, well, I'm going to die for my country doing this and I'm okay with that. Um, and then Hitomi comes in and just sort of is like, nope, you're not getting killed today. Yeah. Again, that and that that continue that happens every single time. So it's mm-hmm. definitely like it, it feels like something the show is really trying to hammer home mm-hmm. because Vaughn does that three times in this span of episodes, and every single time um, somebody else tells him to knock it off. And that yeah. really sad conversation he has with Falcon, where we find out they're brothers, and you know he finds out his brother is alive, and he's like, "Oh, I w- I just told myself that you were dead and you died honorably." Like he's more disappointed that his only living relative is still alive because it means he ran away and preserved his own life. That's just the saddest. Yeah. Crucially, I think Falcon's not really rejecting masculinity either. He's just like this wounded, angry masculinity who's still playing it within the system. He's just mad that he couldn't do it, and he's internalized this feeling of failure. The system isn't broken. I'm broken, so fuck everything. Um... I'm not 100% sure I agree with that yeah. all the way through. I do I do agree that he is that that there is that that sort of sense of of being kind of wounded and feeling sort of maybe betrayed by his own country. Um but his he's kind of an end justify the means goal. He's got this idea that like the system we had built that forced us into violence and conflict is bad. Mm-hmm. So we need to get rid of it. We need to find a way to eradicate conflict. And his solution is, well, if Zyvok just takes over the entire world, right. then there will be no more fighting. Like, remember, this is this is a Kawamori series. Kawamori did the... Uh, he, he did the series composition. So he is... Uh, and as well as the original con- uh, concept. So, like... Kawamori at least partially has the reins here and that has always been sort of a very major concept with him is sort of the concept of like conflict and conflict and how it can be destructive um, and how people can sort of concentrate more on the conflict itself than healing the than healing the source of it. Kawamori has a lot of big ideas and whether they always come through is not a subject of debate because Kawamori is they often do not come through I have no idea how to pull us back on track but I I like we haven't talked about Alan yet and and we need to uh <laughs> Alan <laughs> oh yeah sorry yeah. I'm like totally in a tangential sort of mind space today the ADD is it's okay no today. No, but so, well, here's, here's, um, I guess here's a place to kind of pull us back in. We were sort of talking about Falcon and his whole kind of, I'm going to defeat conflict with conflict. And so for I, what I was getting, sorry, uh-huh. circling us back, what I was kind of moving to, um, so I'm not sure I agree with you in, in the sense of like, the system's not broken, I'm broken. I think he thinks the system is broken, but I think instead of trying to step outside of it, he's trying to work within it. Yeah, and I think that's more what I meant. You said it better. And he's perpetuating a lot of the like again when you look at when you look at his underlings, Delandau's whole team seems you know maybe like they're leaning a little bit too hard into the might makes right. Yeah, D- mm-hmm. Delandau is go, like a let's go murder everybody. Um, he's like a tiny compact mindset. embodiment of masculine violence, extremely so to to the point where he has no other traits almost at starting the, out. The interview with the director that was on the uh, Patreon's like 
Delanda is not terrifying because he's unstable. He's terrifying because he knows exactly what he wants and he's going to do it. Right. He talked about uh, like enjoying the honesty of, of young characters who can just be very direct about what they want, which in his case is just petty want and destruction. Also, it's it's not a good trope, but I kind of miss the the oh no my face. My beautiful Mark, face. Like now, face. Now I'm going to destroy you. Yeah. yeah, that used to show up in... I think that used to show up a lot more in like action and fantasy series than it does nowadays. But yeah, he gets real, real mad about that wound. <laughs> like, I, I feel like every week I can check in and, and, and ask, is Delando okay? And the answer will always be no. <laughs> no, no Delando is never okay. okay. Um, He's my son. <laughs> my awful son. <laughs> He's, he's, he's good. Um, again, even though he's bad, he's good. Which I guess does kind of, kind of bring us yes, to Alan, doesn't it? Yes, your terrible son? <laughs> he's not really my son, because I don't think he's quite young enough to be. Um, I have a weird, enduring fondness for Alan, even though I think he's probably, he's a bit of a trash bag. And we'll, again don't want to dig too deep into this because I think we, we run the risk of accidentally spoiling stuff for people, but we talked earlier about how he's kind of a condescending shit towards Hitomi. Mm. Um, um, his, like, I think the show does a fun thing with Alan where Hitomi, he shows up and he's got like, you know, he, he rescues her and he's got this, he's obviously very pretty mm-hmm. and he's voiced by Miki Shinichiro who, hmm, <laughs> that voice. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, and so there's this sense that you're supposed to see him as, you know, sort of this like princely knightly figure. Um, but pretty much right from the beginning, like anytime you're hanging out with his, with his crew who do like him, um, but they, anytime he get he starts like going into like romantic hero mode, they all just give him shit about it. They're like, Oh, there goes Alan again, man, poor girl. And you're like, huh, should we be concerned? <laughs> and, I like that, I don't think the series ever, I think that it's easy to fall into that same sort of trap that Hitomi does with him, but I think if you're sort of, if you're paying attention, like, the series never really does. The series is like, no, he's, he's a womanizer. Mm -hmm. You can see it happening. He has a reputation. Yeah, Um, Malerna is one of my, my other favorite characters in the series, and I'm really looking forward to the show digging into that whole thing, because, like, I, I, I don't, like, virulently hate Alan, aside of, you know, obviously he's a bag of trash, but I do think he is, like, a he, he's, like, a, a spark for other people to be interesting around him. If that makes sense. I think that's sense. fair. Mm-hmm. I think, I think Alan is kind of interesting. I think Alan is interesting in so much as, like, the way they use him to, again, to explore a lot of these sort of traditional fantasy tropes. And I think you can kind of see how he got to be the way he is based on the the somewhat stereotypical backstory they gave him about, like, you know, he had a younger sister and a mom, and they died, and his dad's been gone forever, and it's like, okay, yeah, I can kind of see why you would, like, think Atomi is a fragile waif, because you've sort of come to equate, like, femininity with fragility. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, the thing I like about Alan is he's he he is a bag of trash, as we continue to say. Um, in 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 very specific context, I think he's an, an interestingly nuanced character. In that you also have he. I think he is a valuable role model for Vaughn, and not role model mentor figure for Vaughn in these early episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he tells him some stuff Vaughn needs to hear that helps him going forward. 
Um, and I also think that, you know, his, his sort of code of chivalry while, um, you know, we'll get, we'll get sort of into his, his flirtations later now that we've got both Malern and Hitomi who are pretty obviously crushing on him. He's also like very adamant about like protecting Vaughn, even when the King of Asturia is like, nah, we gonna give him up. Um, mm-hmm. you know, this is, it's more practical this way. Um, so I, I appreciate the, that he's, that he has this, this kind of streak of loyalty. He has some some worthwhile ideas i think about like how one best like serves others in a role in like the role of like a knight or a soldier um that he passes on to vaughn and he's also a bag of trash when it comes to women Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, yep but but also miki shinichiro with an owl so i like him (laughs) fair enough by the way um well yeah alan's almost a non-entity in the manga malerna is a completely different character so not a whole lot to, uh, not a whole lot of comparisons to make there, huh? No, uh, Alan's almost, yeah, he, like, he's there early on, but then he just kind of vanishes in one of a million dropped threads, and it's not good. Malerna tries to stab Alan, but, or to, to stab Vaughn at one point, but can't do it. Because yeah. something, something, her dad has been poisoned, so... It's not very, but but she's just so sad and and weak, and she holds she holds Alan back by asking him to stay with her. And I, I'm already asleep. I'm already yeah, asleep. Malerna's manga Malerna is like very, like standard. Uh, what you thought maybe the show was going to do with her, and then didn't because she's actually awesome. Malerna, <laughs> yeah. The, one of my one of my favorite moments in these first six episodes is they're all getting ready to go to the bazaar, and Malarn is like, "Oh, Alan was supposed to come with us," but she doesn't do that thing that a lot of a lot of like girls with crushes would do, where she like just says, "Oh, never mind," and just like pines and mopes. She's like, "Oh well, let's go to the bazaar without him. He's not going to stop us mm-hmm. from having fun." Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "Yeah," I'm like you have other shit going on in your life, and we see that like immediately with her, which I I like that. Again, it it kind of it kind of toys with a lot of those those sort of crappy tropes without actually like falling into them mm-hmm. and yeah, it's it's interesting to watch it play out and it makes the show enjoyable and very easy to binge yeah it's it's very again i did we, we both watched it in 24 hours and we were young but mm-hmm. like it, it is extremely consumable it? almost every episode ends on a cliffhanger so i could see us coming into these every week being like well well i guess we'll find out what happens next week mm-hmm. kind of thing so we, we definitely had behind the scenes conversations about about how to break the episodes up of like all right which is the more talk aboutable cliffhanger to break these by <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i guess and this one wasn't too bad like Fawn's about to fight a bounty hunter but it wasn't like anybody was in mortal peril Mm-hmm. As of the as of the closing credits, so. By the way, um, when we st- started doing prep for this, it was before the big announcement, uh, or the you know the big divorce. So, mm-hmm. Escaflona is still streaming, but you do have it, it's over on Funimation's site now. So that's a thing. If, yeah. if you're hoping to watch it along with us, it's not on Crunchyroll anymore. I sadly had to remove it from my queue in Crunchyroll. Yeah, it got it got pulled off Crunchy. Um, you can find it on. I don't know. I don't know what the. I don't know what the international situation is. I know in North America, it's on. It's on Funimation now. Um, they just put the subs back up as of the recording of this, which will go out in a few weeks anyway. So, um, you should be able to track it down there. Um, they have both the sub and the new dub, which is good. 
but cannot possibly compare. And this isn't the new dub's fault. Like, again, I think the cast is doing a fine job. Uh, you just, you can't compare. It's an all-star Japanese cast. Yeah, They're like, so good. I watched, <laughs> I watched the new dub uh, a couple years ago when I was working on my uh, isekai anime panel. And mm-hmm. Funimation only had, a, it wasn't on Crunchyroll yet. It wasn't on Crunchyroll yet. But uh, for some reason, they had, like, a couple episodes with the subs. And then it, after that, it was all dubbed. Uh, mm. And the dub, it is good. Like, it's well done. It was a little bit weird to me uh, listening to Aaron Dismuke play a, a, pre, a post-adolescent boy because last time I had heard him was in Full Metal Alchemist. And it was strange for me. Yeah, thank God they redubbed it though, because the old Escaflone dub by um, Genayon was is probably one of the most famous bad dubs. <laughs> is it really? Yeah, I watched it. I watched the dub the first time through because all I had were VHSs. I don't. I liked it. Like the dub wasn't so bad, I couldn't enjoy the show. Um, but I've pretty much. I mean, I have reliably watched it in Japanese every time since. And I thought this time I was like, oh, I'll watch the new dub. You know, I'll, I you know I'll experience it in a new way. Um, no, no, I, they're fine, but mm, no, no, it's Seki and Maya and Miki, and they're all so good. They're, and Joji Nakata, like, it's such a good cast. It is. The fucking the... count is in this series. I can't. <laughs> like, Sorry, yeah. I... It's a lot of my very favorites playing, like, the major roles, so it's hard to, like, um, early in it's their hard careers, to too. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no. These are this is this is a a very young Maya Sakamoto, a very young Seki Tomokazu, a very young Miki Shinichiro, and all three of them would go on to be rock stars. I'm not sure about Joji Nakata. I think he was a little bit more. No, I um, think he was pretty es- established by then. Um, he's been around for a while. I he's think. yeah. He's he's a bit older than the than than the other trio. Yeah, he's in his 60s. So yeah, he he was a more established um, actor at the time. But like you know, they cast these three main roles as like. Mm-hmm. reasonably kind of up and coming. Like, I think all three of them had had, no, my, this was Sakamoto's like first major role. Um, Miki and Seki had had pretty decent roles you know, at this point. I but... think Seki was rel- like, he was Domon in G Gundam. So he had dev- like, he had played leading roles before, but he was still pretty new. Oh, they've, uh... yeah. Well, they were both they were both in Fushigi Yugi like the year before they were in Escaflone. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, these are Oh God! Yeah, these are like their first major roles, both of them. Um, They've got. I'm to, looking. I'm looking at the cast list now. Um, and then, ah, uh, and then within the next year, uh, Miki was cast as uh, James slash Kojiro in Pokemon, and the rest is history. Um, They've got Minami Takayama so as uh, as Delandao too, who she 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 did um, Nabiki in Ranma before this, so I I call that okay. her first major role. But then after this, uh, she started voicing Conan. Of Detective Conan. Oh, yeah. yeah. She's excellent as Delandau, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, she um, just, every line just drips with the perfect blend of over-the-top, like, barely suppressed violence. She's so good. It's, it's fucking awesome. Uh, baby anime fans may know her as Envy in FMA Brotherhood, but yeah. She's um, so good. God, I love every baby, second. She, that series was like second. ten years ago, you know, Vry. No, time occurs <laughs> baby in the anime order fans. I receive it. um i don't know if it was exactly 10 years ago um who else was i thinking of shit oh merle is pikachu of course that's 
That's so good, Ikue Akani. Yeah. That's, kind of a big that's deal. Wonderful. Yeah, no, so again, all-star cast. I know we, we kind of went on, a, again, a little bit of a tangent here talking about the voice cast, but it's very important that people know how good how good it is. Um, because I, well, and I think that's, I think that's part of what, I think that's part of what gives it so much of its charm, too, is how well everybody embodies these characters and brings them to life. And they're all, again, even the, even the trash bags are really good characters, and I appreciate that about it, so. Mm-hmm. As we talk about it, it kind of reminds me, I'm not personally a fan of Gurren Lagann, but I think there are similar touchstones in that it's a cast that really cared about what they were doing, the robots are well designed, it has a very excellent voice cast, and a plot that's kind of really stupid, but (laughs) runs exclusively on feelings that it really impacts towards the audience well. I yeah, think I, this is a I better can, show. But. Well, Gurren Lagann has has um, has anime bullshit, and again, Escaflone mm-hmm. is refreshingly pretty much void of it. I mean, there's a little bit, uh-huh. but for the most part, it's pretty void mm-hmm. of it, which is awesome. So it makes it a much it makes it an easy show to enjoy because of that. And I think in I think in a lot of ways it holds up better than a lot of stuff in the mid '90s does, mm-hmm. um, because of the way it it's kind of trying to engage with um, a lot of those ideas and. Hitomi's great. Yeah, I, I just keep oh, coming back to Hitomi's I, great. I, I want to touch on like the theme songs a little bit too, because uh, Yakusoku wa Iranai is probably considered one of the best anime theme songs like of the '90s, if not if all time. And it was Maya Sakamoto's first theme song to go. Yeah, with it's an all-time role. Yeah, um, it's it's an all-time great for sure. And Mystic Eyes is hot '90s garbage. Oh my god, it's so amazing. It's so I love the ending thing. <laughs> and like like just the flashing lights and like Hitomi making out with like every man everybody. <laughs> like and like it shows her kissing everyone and then at the end it just shows like Vaughn like looking at the sky and smiling and, like what just happened? <laughs> what is I, going yeah. on here? And, I the song is so the ending- bad. I love the I like the ending theme for the same reason. Uh, the Vashigi Yogi ending theme is a better song, but like by far. But they both have this thing where they drop they drop a pop '90s beat on you, and I just gotta dance. <laughs> I, just, I also love that this art style is the most '90s for you know in many ways. But my favorite is the fact that it has the more wrinkles equals more detailed aesthetic, which always makes me laugh. The Art and animation holds up exceedingly well. Like, yeah, oh, it's beautiful. It does. The fight sequences, um, the whole thing with the dragon in the first episode, I'm like, this is really good looking. This was, what, 96, didn't yeah. we say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it, it, it looks good, and it's, yeah, it's got a little bit more of a, a detailed art style to it, which, again, given that it's pretty high on action scenes, is impressive. I just, I love, like, Blu-ray high-definition cell animation, like... Sorry, like, it's just, you can't beat that for me. Um, I'm not saying that cell animation is inherently better than um, than digital animation, which is used these days, but I, I mean, I do have a personal preference, but whatever. Um, but just, like, seeing, like, the, like, you can see, like, the weight of the lines that the animators made, and it just looks, and the, like, the colors are so bright, and it just looks incredible. Um... And it, yeah, it holds up super well. Agreed. Well, so we are, we are getting to the end of the hour. Um, this is usually the part in these where we'd be like, 
hey, what are you, what do you think is going to happen next? What do you hope will happen next? And I guess we can't really have that conversation because we kind of know what will happen next, even if our memories are a little fuzzy. Um, mm-hmm. Any other, any other final thoughts, gang, in terms of... Um, th- there's going to be no other time to talk about this ever, so I feel like I should say that Van's mentor, who dies immediately, his daughter shows up in the manga, and she has uh, metal nipples on her uniform. Oh no, uh, why? And then she vanishes. Thanks, Jonathan. <laughs> <Like>, uh, <laughs> I love that we're going to... I love that we're going to keep popping back into, meanwhile, in the bad manga, yeah. here's what's happening. I wish they'd localized the shoujo. Like, it, I, I don't know if it's good, but it probably would have been better than the shonen one. I mean, there there would have been, there probably would have been less bullshit. Um, mm-hmm. Or at least a different kind that. of bullshit. I was going to say, it would have been a different kind of bullshit, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I feel like I feel like we were maybe a little directionless this week, but we're also just getting started. So, I think next week we'll be able to kind of zero in on the characters and storylines a little bit better, so... Yeah, yeah. Less production yeah. chatter. And uh, next time we'll be watching episodes 7 through 13. This is a 26 episode, so it'll be 6776 for anybody watching along at home. Which is, you know, we, we hope you do, because we all like this series and we wanted to share it with you. Um, and I would say that wraps it up for us this time. Uh, thank you so much for listening, Anna Fam. If you liked this, you can find more podcast episodes uh, on our SoundCloud or on our website at AnimeFeminist.com. If you really liked it, you can support us on Patreon.com slash AnimeFeminist, where, you know, every little dollar counts. Uh, We really appreciate our patrons, and it helps us to, you know, do things like hopefully pay our contributors more in future, uh, that kind of thing. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Facebook at Anime Femme, on Tumblr at Anime Feminist, or on Facebook, or on Twitter at Anime Feminist. Until next time, Anna Fam, take it easy. Bye.